Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Hey, today we are finishing our series on the book of Colossians. And we started this series eight weeks ago. And if you have not been part of the series, I would encourage you to go back and listen and get caught up on that. Uh, week one, we did a, a big introduction on the context of the city of Colossae, um, the, the, the more context about the letter that was written, why Paul wrote it, those kind of things. And we won't get into all that today, uh, but I do want to remind you the theme for this letter that was written, this book of the Bible, Colossians, is uh, the preeminence or the supremacy of Christ, that there is none that is equal to him, there is none that are near him, that our God is high and above all other gods. Anything we could worship it pales in comparison to the God that we serve. Um, and so this is what Paul's trying to communicate to the Colossian church, and this is what he just drives home over and over and over. And so even today, we're going to see that in some of the things that Paul shares as we conclude this, uh, the book of Colossians today. So we'll start in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. And he's continuing a thought that we talked a lot about last week, so last week we talked a lot about relationships and how all of our relationships are an opportunity to bring glory to God. So uh, husbands and wives, kids and parents, uh, even workers with our employees, things like that. And Paul finishes that thought in verse 1 and he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he's saying, and this literally translated, he's talking about slaves. So if you have slaves, you should treat your slaves humanely, treat them well, treat them as human beings, don't treat them as property is what he's saying. Um, and this just goes back to what we talked about last week, that um, above all other rights we have is the fact that we are believers, and that supersedes everything else in us. So what we do is we say, hey, I might have the right to treat a bond servant badly, but I'm not going to do that because what I believe is as a Christian, those those precepts, they supersede the rights I have. So I'm going to treat someone well because that's what God's called me to do. And so that's what Paul is talking to these guys about in verse 1. So if you want to hear more about that idea, if you missed last week, go back and listen to last week's message. You'll get caught up on that a little bit. And then he transitions in verse 2. And he says, this is where we kind of finish the chapter, or finish the letter. He's kind of wrapping some things up. And so just note, today we're going to talk about a couple different topics, kind of go in a couple different directions. Uh, verse 2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, it's Thanksgiving weekend, so you knew that I was going to talk about Thanksgiving somewhere, didn't you? Right? Here it is. This is the obligatory Thanksgiving text. And by the way, we didn't plan this out. It just worked out like this, because uh, we planned this series like eight months ago. So... It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, you're in church, so you should understand that I would tell you we need to be praying, right? Like, that's just an understood. That's something we're supposed to do as believers, as followers of Christ. We should be praying. But what Paul says is, be steadfastly praying. And what, what it means is that we pray regardless of how we feel. That we pray continually. And we pray even if... Our prayer isn't being answered the way we would like it to be answered. We continue to pray. If, if God seems slow to respond to our prayer, we don't stop praying because of lack of results. We continue to pray because that's what we are called to do. We pray steadfastly, even when I don't feel like it. Yes, there's days that I don't feel like praying as your pastor. There are, I can confess that to you, okay? Because um, there's probably days you don't feel like praying either. I continue to pray. The days that... that I don't see things happening. The day things seem to be falling apart. All those are days that I continue to pray. So we pray steadfastly, but he doesn't stop there. He says we pray steadfastly with thanksgiving. And this is interesting because you go, well, what difference does it make? Isn't that just window dressing? We throw that in. We pray with thanksgiving. Well, no, it's, it's an important element to seeing prayers answered and seeing our hearts transformed through prayer. So when we look on uh, or look back at what we've read over the last few weeks, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, 
abounding in thanksgiving. So remember a few weeks ago we talked about this passage and it, it gives us this idea or this mental image of a tree that it's rooted and it's grounded and it's healthy, it's strong. And a healthy tree will present, uh, produce fruit in its, uh, when it's made that way. And we are people that should be producing fruit. And what it's saying is that it's abounding in thanksgiving, that a healthy Christian should be abounding in thanksgiving. That it shouldn't be something we celebrate once a year when we all get together with our families and we watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and we eat too much turkey and we watch some football and fall asleep on the couch with our weird uncle who's got his top button open, right? Like, <laughs> that's not what it's talking about. What it's saying is, as believers, our lives should be marked with thanksgiving. Our lives should be marked by gratitude. That there is this, this overriding feeling of thanksgiving we have in our lives because we understand, let's go back to the theme of Colossians, what's the theme? The supremacy of Christ, that he is all we need. And when we as believers can remember how big our God is, it makes it easier for us to live a life of thanksgiving. Because when we're walking through dark and difficult seasons, we forget how big our God is, don't we? Because our problems seem huge. Our issues seem huge. The, the, the gap in how much money we have and how much money we need seems huge. The gap in the relationship that, that it seems to be broken seems huge. And it seems bigger than what we can fix. And we go, God, can you even take care of this? But what's happened is we've forgotten how big our God is. Because right. if we can remember how big our God is, then all of a sudden everything else kind of falls into place. And it makes it easy to go, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know you are big, I know you are good, and I know you've got this. So thank you. Thank you even though my prayers haven't been answered quite yet. Thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you've got this. Because you are a big God. Colossians 3, 15. We read this just a couple weeks ago. It says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in, your, in one body, and be thankful. He goes on in verse 17, just a couple verses later, and says, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. So the overriding theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ, but this, this kind of undercurrent that we see is this idea that when we know who our God is, it should produce thanksgiving in our lives. Not once a year in, th in November, right? Every day we go, you know what, no matter what I face this morning, no matter what I face in my job, no matter what I face in my finances, in my relationships, in my life, in my health, I'm going to give thanks because I know God has got this. I know God is bigger than anything I could face. God is bigger than anything I can walk through. So I can put my trust in him. So this is what you have to know. <clears throat> we can either, either give thanks or we can complain. And when I find myself complaining, I have to understand I've forgotten how big God is. It's when I talk to people in the lobby, hey, how you doing? Well, you know what? I can complain, but I'm not going to, right? I've heard that every week. I hear a few people say that, and that's great. It's true. We can complain if we want to, or we can choose and go, you know what? Man, in spite of what I see, I know God's in control. I know God's got this, so God's good. I'm giving thanks today. That's the choice we make every single day. And we really don't have an option but to give thanks when we realize how big and good our God is. Verse 3 says this, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul, listen, listen to this. This is so profound. I hope you catch this. Paul, remember, is in prison for preaching the gospel and his prayer is, or what his request is, hey, pray for me that a door may be opened, not to the prison, so he can get out of prison. But he says, pray for me that a door may be opened, so I can preach the gospel with more clarity. What? Are you kidding me? Now, I'm supposed to be very spiritual because I'm your pastor, but I can tell you, if I was imprisoned for preaching the gospel and I was writing a letter back to you, and I was talking to you about all the things I would like you to do for me, and I asked you to pray for me, I don't think I would be praying that doors would be open for me to declare the gospel more clearly. I think I would be praying that doors would be open so I could be released from captivity, right? Let's be honest about this. 
And yet when I read this, I get so convicted because I go, there's something about Paul that he sees something different than what I see. And for many of us, what happens is we get neck deep in a circumstance, in a painful situation, in a, in a prison cell, in a cave, because we see many situations in Scripture where people, men and women of God, were stuck in a cave, and they go, God, rescue me from this cave, right? Get me out of this prison cell. God, get me out of this circumstance. God, I'm praying that you would take care of this. And if you're a good God and you're a big God, I know I can trust you, but I know I can trust you to get me out of this circumstance, right? But Paul doesn't pray that. He prays, God, I know you are big and I know you are good and I know you've got me in this jail for a reason and whatever the reason is, I trust you. So in the meantime, I'm not going to waste this time and I'm asking you to make my voice clear, to make the words clear that I preach so that people can hear the gospel and their lives can be changed. Gosh, how convicting is that? Because so many of my prayers are about me and my life and my hurt and my pain and my comfort level. And yet Paul says, no, 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 you know, there's something bigger than that, God. There's something more important than my comfort level. And what's more important than my comfort level is your kingdom advancing. It's people knowing you. So God, make my words clear even in my prison cell. You know, for, for me, <laughs> one of the reasons I get convicted is because we talk a lot about other churches here in a healthy way, in a healthy way, Right? Because we want other churches, like we're not the kingdom of God. We're part of the kingdom of God, but we're not the kingdom of God. So we want other churches to do well. And this is, this is by design. We want to be the first clappers for other churches and, and see God working in other churches. But in this moment, I felt a little bit convicted because I thought, you know what? How much do I pray for God's kingdom to advance in other churches versus praying for my own junk and my own stuff and my own comfort and my own happiness and my own, right? And honestly, over the last week or so, as I've thought about this passage, I, I've just prayed, God, help me, to pr help me to see my own needs less, and help me to see the things that you value more. So God, help me be not so concerned about my stuff, and help me start praying for things like, God, bless Grace United Methodist Church. God, bless Saving Grace Church. God, bless Word of Grace. We got a lot of grace in our town, right? <laughs> God bless Greystone. God bless Harvest. God bless Amplify. God bless, right? Because that's kingdom. That's what Paul was preaching. God, let your kingdom advance. But if we're going to be honest, gosh, when we're in that place, we're not busy writing letters to churches to encourage the churches. We're busy going, God, why have you not answered my prayer yet? God, why have you not got me out of here yet? Don't you know I'm miserable? Yeah, he knows. But if it was me in prison instead of Paul, I doubt that I would have written the epistles that he wrote because I would have been too busy complaining about my situation. But yet Paul prays and says, God, help me to focus on the real needs around me and not just on my circumstances. And it's challenging to me. Verse 5 says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So when he says walk in wisdom toward outsiders, he's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about people outside the kingdom of God. And we see this, Paul talks a lot about this idea that we make it simple for unbelievers, that we're not, remember if we go back a few weeks, we talked about <clears throat> the challenges between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church, and you have to convert to Judaism in order to become a Christian. And, and Paul had said, or we had seen several times in, in the New Testament, make it simple for unbelievers. Okay, James, who was the kind of the bishop of Jerusalem, said, no, 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 we make it simple for unbelievers. You know, we're not making them jump through all the hoops. They don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. They don't have to convert to Judaism. And so what Paul is saying here is, is hey, think about this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And then he says, making the best use of time. And this reminds me of, of a passage of Scripture. It's in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. It says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. <clears throat> and it's interesting. When I think about life, so many of the decisions I've made, stupid decisions I've made, is because I thought I had plenty of time, right? Um, oh, I've got plenty of time. Oh, I don't have to worry about that now. I've got plenty of time. Uh, studying for a test. Oh, I've got plenty of time. I can't tell you how many all-nighters I did in college because I thought I had plenty of time, right? I didn't use wisdom. <clears throat> now, there's bigger issues, more important issues than that. Uh, think about your health. How many people go, oh, I've got plenty of time. I can eat whatever I want. i got plenty of time. And then one day they have a conversation with their cardiologist, and their cardiologist says, hey, 
you are a ticking time bomb, right? And now what's happened? Well, they realize time is not infinite. They've got a finite amount of time, and they've got to use their time wisely, right? We, we see this over and over. This is why we can binge watch 10 hours of Netflix on our day off and not feel bad about it. Because we go, oh, I've got plenty of time to do those projects and take care of those things and read the books and do the things I need to do. Is there anything wrong with watching Netflix? No, it's fine. But if that's what you do every day, you, you might have a challenge, right? That's why we eat fast food every day. Well, I don't eat it every day, just five days a week. Because <laughs> we think it's no big deal. It's not going to hurt. I got plenty of time. I can always get healthy later. That's why we consume rather than contribute is because we feel like I've got plenty of time. Oh, I can, I can always help with that. Oh, I can always do that later. Right now, it's about me. I've got plenty of time. And as a result, we tend to live unwisely when we fail to realize that our days are numbered. We do stupid things because we don't realize that we might not have as much time as we think we have. But when we understand that our days are numbered, according to the psalmist, we will gain a heart of wisdom. When we understand that every day matters and every day is important and every moment counts, then it begins to put more weight on our lives. It doesn't mean we can't watch Netflix or eat fast food, but what it means is we live with a different level of understanding about our lives. And so what Paul says is, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. And what he's saying is, hey, use wisdom, understanding not only is your life finite, but their life is finite too. <laughs> they may never walk through the door of a church ever again. This might be their last time. So don't squander that. Don't waste that on stupid stuff like you're not wearing the right outfit today. Don't squander it on stupid stuff like you don't look like us. That's what Paul's saying. He says, understand that time is finite and prioritize the things that really matter. And what really matters is people. He says, understand that we don't have as much time as we think we have. So be wise. Um, I hadn't planned on sharing this this weekend. And, and I'm not saying this. I'm not fishing for anything when I say this. So please, don't say anything later about it. It's no big deal. Um, ab about a month or so ago, I was at my parents' house in Oklahoma, and I was preaching at a couple churches down there. And my parents have one of those, like, doctors off the scales in their house. So I thought, eh, let's see. And I got on there, and the scale doesn't lie. I checked several times to make sure it wasn't lying. The scale said 308 pounds. I don't really appreciate the gasps and moans. <laughs> <gasps> Dear Lord, how has his heart not exploded already? Wow, I was already feeling a little self-conscious, putting myself out there, being vulnerable. Whew. And when that, when that scale said 308, I did kind of what you did. I went, ooh. Because I've said this jokingly. When I was in college, I was the size of an NFL wide receiver. And the older I get, the closer to the middle of the field I get. Now I'm like the size of an NFL center. Um, <laughs> and I'm not having any health issues. I don't have high blood pressure, cholesterol, or any of those kind of things. But I knew when I saw that, if I don't do something, I will. And, and in that moment, it was like, I don't have plenty of time. I can't wait to do something. I need to start doing something. And so I did. And I've been losing weight. I've been getting healthier. And I don't need you to pat me on the back or give me your latest diet craze or what you can do to help me or the essential oils that I can rub on my tummy or whatever it is. <laughs> I had a few of those last night. I'm good. What I'm saying is it took a moment like that for me to, to realize my days are numbered. 
And I can be a good steward of my finances and my time and my talent, but if I'm not a good steward of my health, what difference does it make? If God would prefer for me to live 80 years, but I only live 65 because I eat garbage all the time, then what good is that? And so when I realize my days are numbered, I begin to live more wisely. Does that make sense to anybody? And this is what God says. Don't just apply it to your life. Apply it to the people and the lives around you as well. When you live wisely, you understand, man, these people might not have much time. So I'm not going to be afraid to take them some brownies and invite them to Christmas Eve services. Because I don't know how much time they've got. So I'm going to walk in wisdom with them. And I'm not going to care about how I feel. I'm not going to care about my pride. I'm going to lay that down because there's some things that are more important. Does that make sense to anybody? Colossians 4, 6 says this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned by, or with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And this word gracious, um, it is what you think it is, but sometimes when I think of gracious speech, I think of dispersing grace to people, like, oh yes, I'm so gracious to you. <laughs> yes, I'm gracious to you as well. And I'm giving grace because I'm gracious. But really what it's talking about is, we give grace because we've received grace. So really, we are just conduits of grace. The grace that we've received, we transmit to other people. We are giving it out to people. See, what happens so many times is our language is not seasoned with graciousness, the graciousness of God. It, it's seasoned with competition and bitterness and pride and envy and maybe a little bit of gossip. And we sprinkle it all in there, and then we wonder why we've got unhealthy relationships. And what Paul says to the church, remember what the context is. The context is relationships, health between divided people in a church and a congregation. And he says, make sure, these are parting shots, okay? He says, make sure that your speech is seasoned with graciousness, just like it's seasoned with salt. Just like your food is seasoned with salt. And, and really, in this day and age, they would season meat specifically with salt. They would make it more savory and tasty. Uh, they would just make it more palatable. But it would also prevent the meat from going bad. And so what Paul's saying is, hey, make sure your language is not corrupt. And I'll be honest with you, the first thing I think of when I think of corrupt language is, is curse words. The, the big ones, you know what I'm talking about, like the things we don't say under any circumstance. Um, but it's funny, when my girls were little, uh, they didn't know those words, but we had words in our house that we didn't use, so we didn't say stupid or fat. And so when my girls got a little bit older and they were going to school and they would come home and they'd say, Daddy, Somebody in my class said the, the F word today. Which, which F word? I can't say it. Just, just whisper. Just, just whisper it to me. Be like, oh, thank God. Okay. Oh, yeah, we don't say that. That's terrible. I can't believe she would say that. Yeah, we don't say that word, baby. But I'd be, oh, thank you, Lord. Right? These are what I think of when I think of... of of, of corrupt language, but, but I'll be perfectly honest with you. If I could have somebody in my church that cusses like a sailor or somebody in my church that gossips like crazy, give me the person that cusses like a sailor every day of the week. Because what damages the body is not somebody who drops an F-bomb. Again, I'm not advocating that. But what I'm saying is what damages the body of Christ is not somebody that lets their tongue slip once in a while with a curse word, but it's the person who will gossip about other people and act like everything's great. That damages the body. And this is what Paul's saying. Hey, don't let any corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Just like you would never think to eat a piece of rancid meat, right? You'd want to season it and make sure it was good and you'd want to make sure it was maintained and pure. He said, don't let anything rancid come out of your mouth about any other person in the body of Christ. Guard your heart. Guard your this is the thing. What comes out of our mouth is a reflection of our heart. We see this in Scripture. So what has to happen is our heart has to be bathed in the grace of God so that what comes out of our mouth is bathed with the grace of God. If you've got a, a mouth problem, you've got a heart problem. So let's start there and say, God, cover me with your grace so that the words I say won't be hurtful and harmful and divisive, but the words I say will bring life to the people around me. 
He moves to this portion of scripture now where he's kind of given his, his shout outs, where he kind of says, all, hey, tell so-and-so and say hi to so-and-so and give my love to, and he's doing all that. And he does this at the end of letters. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of times, this is where I kind of mail it in, where I'm like, okay, we're done. What do we have to talk about here? He's just telling people bye. But there's a couple of things that kind of caught my eye, and I want to walk through them with you real quickly. Verse 7 of Colossians 4 says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. So he says, hey, these two guys are going to tell you everything that's gone on. You go, that's great, Mel. But, but let me take just a minute with these two guys. The first that I want to mention is Onesimus. He's mentioned in the second spot here. Onesimus is a guy we talked about earlier in this series. He's also a guy we talked about back in, uh, when we did our series or our, our one-week sermon on the book of Philemon. So we covered the book of Philemon in one week. And Philemon was um, a wealthy man. He was a man of notoriety. He was also a leader in the Colossian church. Uh, and he had uh, slaves. And one of his slaves was a guy named Onesimus, who's mentioned here. And Onesimus fled. He ran away from his master. He escaped. And he ran to Rome, the most populous city in the world at that time. And he gets to Rome, and he has an encounter with Paul, who also has a relationship with Philemon and the church at Colossae. And God, it doesn't matter how far you run, if God's got a plan and a purpose for your life, he's going to make it happen somehow. And so Philemon um, it gets this letter from Paul, and this letter basically says, hey, you need to forgive Onesimus because Onesimus has given his life to Christ. He's no longer a slave. He's your brother, so receive him as such. Now, this is the twist because in Roman law, an escaped slave could be punished by death. So Onesimus ran away, and his sentence was to be killed when he came back, if he came back. And what Paul says is the right thing to do is to go back and reconcile this relationship, even though it may cost you your life. So I hope that's not lost on you, that Paul says, hey, Onesimus, I want you and Tychicus to go deliver this letter to the guy that you ran away from. And Tychicus is going to go with you and he's going to help you. He's going to help be a mediator for this to make this right, but Good luck in your trip. I hope it goes well. So Onesimus is helping deliver this letter. And you have Tychicus. And so they're delivering three letters at once. They're delivering the, the letter to the Ephesian church, which is the book of Ephesians. They're delivering uh, the book of Colossians to the Colossian church. And then the letter to Philemon as well. So these three letters, the three books of the Bible, are all being delivered by Tychicus and by Onesimus. Now, Tychicus is a guy that you've probably never heard of before. He's mentioned five times in Scripture, and that's it. Tychicus was a habitual fill-in. Okay. We see twice in Scripture, once where he's dispatched to replace uh, Titus uh, as the pastor of his church because Paul needed Titus to come to Rome. He also, we also see him replace Timothy at the end of Paul's life because Paul wanted to see Timothy before he died. So he dispatched Tychicus to take his place in those two times. So he was the substitute. He was the fill-in. He was also responsible for delivering letters, three of which we just talked about. There were two others, uh, 2 Corinthians and 2 Timothy. So these five letters, 2 Corinthians, there's some question about, but at least four, but maybe five letters that Tychicus delivered. Now listen to this. We can look at Tychicus and go, we don't even know who this guy is. He's mentioned five times in Scripture, and it's one-liners. It's not like it goes into depth. Why was he important? This is why he was important, because this man may have been responsible for delivering almost a quarter of the writings that Paul had to the church that is now known as gospel for us today. It's, it's in the Bible. But yet, I don't think he ever complained that he was just an errand boy, that he was just a fill-in. I, I, I would venture to guess he never once complained about how hard the journey was, because the journey was hard. To get from Rome to Colossae, let me tell you in modern day terms what this was like. So if, if we decided we're going to replicate this journey, this is what it would have looked like. If you left Summit Church today and you began walking and you walked to Detroit, Michigan, 363 miles, it would take you 110 hours if you didn't stop. From Detroit, you get on a boat in the Great Lakes and you sail around southern Michigan 
to Chicago. Once you get to Chicago, you're not done yet. You still got another walk on your hands. From Chicago, you'd walk to Madison, Wisconsin, another 138 miles. It would take you 46 more hours. And that's if conditions are perfect. This is a journey that might have taken Tychicus and Onesimus a month or more, pretty easily. Difficult traveling. While he was on the boat, it's not like a luxury cruise where you get to go to the buffet every day and, you know, oh, sure, I'll take some ice cream even though I'm stuffed. It wasn't like that. They, they ate what they brought on board the ship or what they caught over the side of the ship. That is what they ate on the journey. And they walked the whole way. I can't imagine he ever complained and said, can you believe I have to do this junk? Can't, can't we get some help in here to do this? Do you know what I truly believe Tychicus thought? Can you believe I get to do this? Can you believe that this is part of what God's called me to do? I get to help serve the kingdom of God. I get to deliver letters into people's hands, messages to people that are going to transform their lives. And Tychicus had no idea that thousands of years later we would be reading these letters and our lives would be changed because of it. I can imagine Tychicus was thankful for what he got to do. Thank you, God that I get to be on this journey. Thank you, God, that I get to deliver these letters. Thank you, God, that I get to fill in when I'm asked to fill in. I'm going to do it, God. I don't think he ever felt sorry for himself. And this is what happens so many times for us. We go, well, I'm not that talented. I can't sing. I can't preach. Who am I? I just hold babies in the nursery. I just open the door for people when they come in the church, and that's it. But let me tell you something. What you're doing is important. Because you don't know what baby you're holding in the nursery. You might be holding a baby that never, ever, ever, ever gets the love and attention that you are giving that baby. You might be taking the baby from a mama who maybe has been hurt by church and disappointed by church and been burned by church in the past and they're giving church one more try and if they don't have a good experience in the nursery, that's all they're going to need to walk away from church forever. And that experience of giving their baby to a, a smiling man or woman and going, oh, oh yeah, give me that baby. I'm going to take good care of your child. Might be all they need. That, that lesson that you deliver as a kid's worker you might think, oh, it's a simple message, but you don't know how that message will change that child's life and the ripple effects it will have in years to come. People don't come to church because they've got their lives together. People come to church because they're hurt, because something's happened, because they're disappointed, because something's going on. And we, when we stand at the door and greet them with a warm smile, when, when we've got people that stand in the parking lot and will wave, When it's snowing, when it's raining, I can't tell you how many people have said, man, that guy in the parking lot, yeah. right? Yeah. Not just in the parking lot, he's making a difference. It's, it's, it's not a little thing, it's a big thing, and we have no idea how big a thing it really is. I told this story a few years ago, and I want to share this with you again today. There was a man in 1855, who was teaching a Sunday school class in his church. His name was Edward Kimball. You've probably never heard of Edward Kimball before. Most people haven't. There was a young man in his Sunday school class named Dwight, and Dwight was a kind of a typical young adult male. He just um, didn't really get it, really struggled with the direction he wanted to go in his life. And one day, Edward decided he was going to confront Dwight at his work. And so he met Dwight at his work, which was a shoe store, and he was on break, so they went to the back room, and they had a conversation, and over the course of that conversation, Dwight surrendered his life to Christ. He made a decision to follow Jesus, made him Lord of his life, and from that day forward, Dwight's life was changed. His name, you might know him better by his preacher name, D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody founded Moody Bible College. Over the course of his life, he led hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Now, Edward Kimball doesn't get credit for that because he was just a Sunday school teacher. But D.L. Moody was responsible for impacting the world in amazing ways. If the story ended there, it would be good enough, but it doesn't end there. D.L. Moody led a young man named John Wilbur Chapman to the Lord. He came forward at one of D.L. Moody's crusades and 
Wilbur Chapman came forward and prayed the prayer. His life was changed. He surrendered his life to a call to ministry, and so he pursued um, becoming a pastor and a minister, and and uh, he led crusades, saw thousands of people saved. Um, he led some of the first mega churches in the United States. As a matter of fact, his church, the biggest attendance was around 12,000 on a Sunday. And this, again, was around the, the turn of the, the 20th century. So this was a big, big deal. He was reaching thousands of people for Christ, doing amazing things for God. And he was uh, also mentoring a young man named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday came to the Lord under D.L. Moody's ministry, and he was a former professional baseball player who gave up professional baseball to follow a call to Christ. So he surrendered his life to Christ, and he became a preacher. Can you imagine very many people that would give up a professional baseball career to become a preacher today? I cannot myself. Well, I guess I make almost as much as a major league baseball player, but not quite. <laughs> Billy Sunday was mentored by John Wilbur Chapman, saved under D.L. Moody's ministry, and he, again, was responsible for seeing hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ. Story doesn't end there. Billy Sunday did a crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1924, and a group of men were saved in that crusade in 1924, a group of businessmen, and they decided, let's form a coalition, let's get together once a month for this Christian Businessmen's Association, and that's where it started in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they decided a few years later, we want to bring in an evangelist to do something big. And they brought in a guy named Mordecai Ham to speak. And when he was doing his crusades in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1934, a young man named Grady Wilson decided, decided he and his best friend, they were going to skip school and go to this crusade and check it out. They were going to make fun of Christians. But what happened is they got there that day and they heard a message that something tugged on their heart and they responded to that message that day and they went forward for salvation. And what we see is that, that Grady uh, Wilson became an evangelist and a speaker and an author and did great things, but his best friend named Billy Graham did amazing things for the glory of God. See, Tychicus never ever felt like what I'm doing is not important. He understood it had value, but he didn't understand how valuable. See, Edward Kimball thought he was just witnessing to Dwight Moody, this punk kid in his Sunday school class, little did he know that because of that conversation, literally millions of people would hear the gospel. Billy Graham was able to share the gospel with more people in the world than any other individual human in the history of the human race because of media. Millions of people heard the gospel because of Billy Graham. And it all started with a guy you've never heard of. <laughs> Named Edward Kimball. So God, help us. Help us never be so focused on how small our role is that we forget that we get to do this. We don't have to. Nobody's forcing us. We get to do this. We get to hold doors. We get to be kind to our neighbors. We get to be a part of what God's doing. And we have no idea the ripple effects. We have no idea what's going to happen with the little bit of kindness we show, the little bit of love we show, the little bit of service we give. It could change the world, and that is not hyperbole. Verse 10 says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes, do you welcome him? And Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, like it says. His name was John Mark. And he went with Paul on one of his missionary journeys, but he quit during the missionary journey. He decided he wanted to go home. We don't know why exactly. So in the middle of the trip, he cut out and went back. And Paul was not happy about that. And so later, Barnabas, who was friends with Paul, was largely responsible for Paul being introduced to the Christian church because Paul, before Paul was, before he was, he was, um, saved in this incredible encounter. Am I still on? Okay. Before he was saved in this incredible encounter in Christ, he um, was killing Christians. And so Barnabas helped mediate Paul with the Christian church and get him connected to the church. And so they were very close, they were intimate, they were in relationship. And when Paul cut John Mark off and said, Nope, no more. This was a big deal. So Paul and Barnabas were going to go on a, a trip to go to some of the churches that they had visited or started before. And Barnabas says, how about if we take my cousin, John Mark? And Paul basically said, over my dead body. We're not taking that guy. Here's two godly men, 
Paul and Barnabas, who could not agree, right? They separated at that point. They continued to do godly things, incredible things for the glory of God. We never see that they were ever reconciled, that they were ever journeying together again, that they were ever friends again. But what we see is God continued to work in both of them. And what we see here is that the source of this conflict, who is John Mark, he says to the Colossian church, hey, if he comes to you, treat him well, take care of him, right? So, so God must have done something in that situation where Paul had forgiven and maybe been reconciled with John Mark and with Barnabas. And I'm telling you today, um, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, God calls us to forgive those who have hurt us. We don't have to be reconciled to them necessarily because that's not up to us, but we have to forgive. And because John Mark was reconciled, I think God continued to work in his life. Um, we see that he shadowed Peter for much of Peter's life. He spent a lot of time with the Apostle Peter, and, and he also wrote the book of Mark that's in your Bible. Uh, that is from this young man. And again, I'm thankful that God uses people who mess up, who blow it, and that God can reconcile us together. Colossians 4.11 says, and Jesus, who's called justice, is not the same Jesus, different Jesus. It says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So he says, these are the men who are, are Jewish in descent, and they're a comfort to me. Verse 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So we mentioned this at the beginning of the series, that Epaphras was from Colossae. He was saved in Ephesus when Paul was ministering there. And then he goes back to Colossae and he starts the churches at Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. So he plants these churches. And, and when I talked about this before, I told you, I said, I believe that there are people here in this room that are going to be called to start churches. And it was silent, just like that, just then. <laughs> and afterwards, and this wasn't just throwing out something I was throwing out, I really believe that, because if we're, I think God's called us to be a multiplying church and not an addition church. It's great that we add, but I think God wants to multiply. Our region needs it. And so, <clears throat> so afterwards, I, I said that a few weeks ago, and uh, somebody came up to me and tears in their eyes, and they said, that's me. God's been speaking to me about quitting my job and, and, you know, starting a church or helping, and I can't, and he said, that just kind of solidified it, and man, I want to talk more with you about that. And some of you are going, great, now I'm off the hook. No, you're not. <laughs> because I'm telling you, there's, there's going to be opportunities. God's going to call some of you out of your vocation to, to start a church, to help start a church, to do something incredible for God that you never dreamed you would. And, and this is what we see Epaphras do. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Luke was the author of Luke and Acts in Scripture. He's also a, a companion of Paul's. Verse 15 says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, I'm not going to spend just a couple minutes on this, but, um, but Nympha was a woman who had a house church. So this church was in her house. <laughs> Everybody in the church is looking. It's okay. Have a good day, guys. We'll see you. I look and everybody is. So Nympha was a woman. She had a, a, house, a church in her house. And what we see here is, and this is Paul's, this is how Paul functioned. Paul had female leadership in just about every church he started. Uh, the Philippian church would not have gotten its start if it hadn't been for a woman. Um, there was so much evidence that Paul leaned on women uh, in leadership that it's almost overwhelming. And what we see here is that um, there's virtually no question, well, there's no question she hosted the church, and that probably means, according to tradition, that she was the overseer of the congregation, so she was probably the pastor of this church as well. Now, it wasn't necessarily the church at Laodicea, that's a little bit unclear, but she was definitely a pastor of one of the churches in this area. And what we also know is that Paul didn't greet anyone else at that church, so he didn't say, hey, I want to greet Nympha, the church that's in her home, and I also want to greet 
so-and-so who's the pastor of that church. And so what it seems to indicate fairly clearly is that she was the leader of this church. So again, I just want to reiterate here at Summit Church, we believe in female leadership, not because female leadership is better than male leadership or anything like that, just because we believe women are just as anointed as men are to be able to preach the word of God and to lead, that they have leadership giftings and, and qualities that if we don't allow them to do what God's called them to do, then we are robbing the body of the gift that they have. And so um, why would I not want uh, a gifted, talented female to bring the word of God? Because... Um, if I don't, then we're robbing the body of a gift. So again, we're going to talk more about this in, in after the first of the year. I'll probably do a whole week on something like this. We're going to do a series that's going to be really challenging in, the, in 2019 uh, that we're going to talk through some things that we normally don't talk through in church. And, I, and this might be one of the things we walk through together. So verse 16, as we're closing out, says this. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodicea, and the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Archippus was a leader. He might have been a deacon in the church. Um, but I love that Paul calls him out in the letter, and he says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. He basically says, be faithful to the calling that's on your life. Make sure you do what God has called you to do. Because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. Verse 18 says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul usually didn't write his own letters. He had a scribe, so he would dictate the letters and someone would write them for him. And in, what this indicates is he took the, the pen at the end and he wrote it with his own hand. Hey, I want you to know this is serious. I want you to know this is from me. He says, remember my chains. He doesn't sign off and say, uh, best wishes or yours truly, the Apostle Paul, right? He says, remember my chains. Why is that? Was this an opportunity to guilt trip the Colossian church and go, hey, I'm here because of you people? No. I think he wanted them to remember the price that was paid for them to be able to do what they're doing. And the truth is, this kind of brings us back to this idea of thankfulness that we talked about earlier. When we remember what it took for us to be able to do what we're doing, it should give us a sense of thankfulness. When we remember the price that Christ paid for us, that's why every month, the first weekend of every month, we have communion together here as a church. But that's why once a month we set aside time and go, no, no, no we're receiving communion together because we want to take some time and remember the chains, right? We want to remember the suffering, the sacrifice, because when we can remember that, it gives us a sense of gratefulness and, and gratitude. Thank you, God, for what you've done. And really when we look at this series, when we look at, at what Paul has written to the Colossian church, gosh, there's so much to go through, but if we can remember that Christ is supreme, and because he's supreme, we can have a sense of thankfulness and gratitude for what he's done. Yeah. It will impact us. It will change us fundamentally. When we look at what we've talked about today, we've kind of been all over the place as Paul is wrapping up this letter. And I could go through the bullet points Maybe this is you, and maybe this is you, and maybe this is you, but I'm not going to do that because I think the Holy Spirit's already spoken to you about whatever he needed to speak to you about today. I think he's, there was, there was a moment in the message probably that, that the Holy Spirit kind of pushed on that tender spot in you that you were like, whoa, 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 okay, okay, I get it, I get it, right? Because he does that with us, if we're tender, if we're sensitive. And so I don't think I have to go through a list with you. I think the Holy Spirit's already done that. So what I want to do is I just want to pray together. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit just to draw people who don't know him and aren't in a relationship with Christ. And I'm just going to pray that God would do the work in us that he wants to do. He doesn't need my help to do it. He can do it without me. So let's just pray together. Lord, we love you. And I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for what you've spoken to us, God. Lord, I pray that I would not have been in the way today. That people wouldn't have seen me, but they would see you. God, I pray that Lord, your Holy Spirit would deliver to each of our hearts exactly what we needed to hear, exactly what we needed to receive. And Lord, our lives would be changed, not because of a presentation, but because of your goodness and your word. So Lord, have your way among us today. God, I pray for those that are here that don't know you, that aren't in relationship with you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would gently draw them today. Lord, that you would do the work to woo them and to bring them home and let them see your goodness and kindness at work. 
And God, I pray that you would, Lord, help us not just to go through the motions, but God, truly let us be your church, your bride. Let us not settle for anything less. Now, with your head bowed and your eyes closed and nobody's looking around, I just want to ask if you're here today and you say, Mel, pray for me. Today's my day. I want to surrender my life to Christ. I'm not going to embarrass you or bring you forward or anything like that. I just want to pray with you where you're at. So if you're here and you say, that's me, pray for me. I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to give him everything. Would you be bold enough to put your hand up real high where I can see it? You can put it right back down. Maybe you're here today and you say, Mel, I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to heaven, but the truth is there was something you mentioned today that, gosh, it really spoke to my heart. It really challenged me, and I realized that I'm not where I need to be, that there's something that needs to happen in me to become who God wants me to be, and, and I need the Holy Spirit's help today. If that's you, would you be bold enough to raise your hand where I can pray for you? Yeah, a bunch of you. Thank you, Lord. Let me pray with you. God, I'm so grateful for your goodness and your love and your mercy for us. Thank you for the people in this room that have recognized the fact that we're not where we need to be, Lord. I pray that you minister in each of us. God, your, your Holy Spirit would deliver the word we need to hear, Lord. Your Holy Spirit would challenge us in a way that, that Father, we wouldn't just sit back, but, Lord, we would be active about allowing you to change our lives. Lord, we would not be complacent. We would not be satisfied. But, God, I pray that you would speak to us and challenge us to take a next step, to be bold, and to do what you're calling us to do. Lord, thank you for, for men and women in this room and watching online that are responding in their hearts to what you want to do today. God, I pray that it wouldn't stop there. Lord, I pray that it would carry into tomorrow and the next day. And Lord, you would help us to become the people of God you want us to be. Lord, give us clearly identified markers and goals that we can, we can set out for. Let it not just be a feeling that evaporates as we leave this place. So Lord, I thank you, and I love you, and I can't wait to see what you're going to do in the people's lives that are in this room. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, hey, here's what's going to happen right now. The worship team's going to lead us in one more song. We're going to sing together, and while we're singing, our prayer team's going to step out, and they'll be on either side of the stage. And if you need prayer for any reason at all today, I would love for you to step out and let one of them pray with you before you leave. And then in just a moment, when we're done singing, Pastor Christina Butterworth is our kid's pastor. She's going to come, and she'll close us out and dismiss us. But please don't leave. I want to show you a quick video before we get out of here in just a moment. So why don't you stand your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go today, guys. I tell you this often. I hope you know it. I love you more than you know. And I'm so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.